This is recording number 10811 from the teaching ministry of Crossroads Community Church in Vallejo, California. This is the 12th message in the outpouring series by Randy Bolt. It was recorded on Sunday morning, April 12, 2009. This message is titled, The Heart of the Matter. of Acts. Turn to chapter 13, and we're going to pick up where we left off last week. Paul has begun, or Saul, um, began his uh, first of several missionary journeys. And as I told you last week, the center of gravity for the expansion of the Church of Jesus Christ has, has uh, moved from Jerusalem to a place called Antioch in Syria. And from there, poised on the or perched on the edge of the rest of the Roman world, the, the move is now going to be towards, towards the Gentile world. And as we read last week, Saul, who was a persecutor of the church, but encountered the living Christ and has become an advocate of the, of the gospel of Jesus Christ, especially to the Gentiles, changed his name from Saul to Paul. And so... Uh, from now on, we won't refer to him as Saul, but to Paul. And here's, a, here's where the journey began, in Antioch, in Syria. And they traveled, as we read last week, first to Seleucia on the coast there of the Mediterranean, and then down to Salamis on the island of Cyprus, and then across the island to Paphos. And we spent a lot of time last week talking about what happened there in Paphos. Let's begin reading at... Um, Verse 13 of chapter 13. Now when Paul and his party set, out, uh, set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia. So they traveled quite a ways up into modern-day Turkey to a place called Perga. And John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. Now remember, there's Paul, there's Barnabas, and then they brought with them a guy named John Mark. And uh, he has been a part of the journey so far. But when they get to Perga, make note of the fact that John leaves them to return home. Because we'll, we'll talk more about that in weeks to come. But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia. So now this is a different Antioch up in a, a place called, or in a region called Pisidia. And they went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. Verse 15 says, And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them, saying, Men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. So they, as was their custom, Paul and Barnabas, when they got to a city, they went into the synagogue. And uh, the first part of the synagogue service takes place. The, the leader of the synagogue stops after that and notices the visitors and says, Hey, you guys have anything to say to us? So verse 16, then Paul stood up, motioning with his hand and said, Men of Israel, and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with an outstretched, or excuse me, uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. And he begins to recount to them a part of their history. He's setting the context or the stage for telling them about Jesus, that he was the Messiah, that once believed on, 
he alone can forgive sins. So uh, we'll skip down to verse 25 where he's reaching the point of the ministry of John the Baptist, which they were all familiar with. Verse 25, and as John was finishing his course, he said, who do you think I am? I'm not he, but behold, there comes one after me, the sandals of whose feet I'm not worthy to loose. Men and brethren, Paul is addressing the assembly there at the synagogue in in Antioch of Pisidia. Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to you the word of this salvation has been sent. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, Christ Jesus, nor even the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. So he's setting into context the crucifixion of Jesus. And he's saying that you're, the leaders of our, our uh, family, the leaders of the Israelites in Jerusalem, uh, they didn't pay attention to the prophets that are read every single Sabbath day. And they fulfilled what the prophets had foretold by condemning Jesus. And though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he would put him to death. Now when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree. When he talks about the tree, he's talking about the cross, the crucifixion stake that Jesus gave his life on. Now when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. But God raised him from the dead. And dear ones, that's the heart of the matter. That's why we're here today. That's why we're here any Sunday. It's the heart of the matter. Jesus did not stay dead. Christianity is a fraud if there is no resurrection. That's how important this is. In fact, Paul writing in 1 Corinthians 15, a different book in the Bible, he says this. He says that if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. If in, and if in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. Now think about that. If you're just a bunch of guys trying to fabricate a religious system and you're, you know, you're making this up as you go, the last thing you're going to do is write something like this in the sacred book. He says, look, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, this is all a bunch of baloney. Why would you do that? That's like, you know, that's like, and, and I don't mean this in a disrespectful way, but that's like Joseph Smith writing in the Book of Mormon, if you can never find any historical evidence for this stuff that I've written here, just understand it's all a bunch of, of make-believe. And by the way, there has not been any historic evidence ever found for every, anything in the Book of Mormon. So Paul says, if Jesus isn't alive, if he didn't rise from the dead, disregard this whole thing. Why would you do that? It's like if you have a wife who makes, you, uh, you know, makes a dozen cookies. A dozen is a specific number. How many? Twelve. Twelve. Your wife, say your wife makes a dozen cookies. Chocolate chip, milk chocolate chip. Not that this has ever happened to me or anything like that, but <laughs> sets them out there on the counter and they're just sitting there and you're just eyeing them. Again, that has never happened to me before, but 
And she says specifically, don't touch those cookies. They're for my friends that are coming over later. I have to go to the store. Don't touch those cookies. Oh, okay, I won't. But temptation leaves, and temptation gets the better of you. And again, this has never, ever happened to me before, but you, you take one, you know. She comes home, and she asks you point blank, did you take any cookies? Did you eat any cookies? Oh, no, no. Go count them and find out. How stupid of a thing to say. <laughs> well, Paul is saying this remarkable thing. Look, if Jesus isn't alive, if he didn't rise from the dead, then throw this whole thing out. It's a waste of time. It's a fraud. That is in the Bible. Because the resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the most um, documented events in human history, at least of ancient history. Now, that doesn't mean there aren't people who don't want to believe it. That doesn't mean it isn't hard to believe. But of the kind and the quality of evidence that people are looking for to validate anything of ancient history, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is overwhelming in that department. And we're going to explore just a little bit of that today. Because that's really not the point. But I want you to have enough of an idea of the solid ground we stand on when, we, when Paul makes this statement about the centrality of the resurrection of Jesus. Be reminded of these things that Paul is saying. He's saying if Christ, Christianity is a fraud if there's no re- resurrection because God can't be trusted. He said it would happen. If it didn't happen, God can't be trusted. He said... If, the res- if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then you're still in your sins. Dear ones, there's no basis for God to forgive. Jesus dying in our place made it possible for God to forgive us. If he didn't die and rise from the dead, then there is no basis for God's forgiveness. And he says, if, if all we have to hope for is whatever we get out of this life, then... We're the, of all men the most pitiable. We have no expectation. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we, you and I have no expectation of hope beyond this life. But as I said, the tomb is empty. The tomb is empty. I've actually been there. I can verify nobody in there. <clears throat> now, that's, that's not sufficient evidence for anything. But it's the starting place. It is a historic fact that a man named Jesus died in Jerusalem and he was buried there. It's also an historic fact that there is no uh, body. Now, there are at least two competing um, sites you could visit today in Jerusalem uh, that claim to be the, uh, the actual tomb where Jesus was buried. And I've, I've, you, know, you can visit both of them. There's no body in either one. But the truth is, we're not sure that either one of them is the actual... There's no way to know for sure if either one of them is the actual tomb where Jesus was buried. But I'll tell you what, if there were such a place, if there were a a body anywhere in Jerusalem, there is so much at stake in this, that body would have been found. There is no body, so let's just start there. Now, that leaves us three options. One, that he didn't really die. That he somehow, you know, passed out or whatever. They thought he was dead. They threw him in a tomb somewhere. And he 
came to, you know, came to and, you know, broke out of that tomb. That's one option. But they made sure that he was dead. That's the whole thing about the spear in the side, puncturing the, his, uh, his chest cavity and into the sack around the heart. They were tired of waiting on these guys to die. It took them a long time to die by crucifixion because you suffocate is what happens. You can't, um, you know, you have to pull yourself up to, and push yourself up to get air into your lungs and pretty soon you can't do that anymore. So you suffocate. It takes a long time. And so they, uh, the, they said to the soldiers, go and break their legs so they don't, can't push themselves up anymore and will hasten their dying. Well, when they got to Jesus, they didn't have to break his legs because he was already dead and to make sure they punctured his rib cage with the spear. They made sure he was dead. These were professional executioners. They knew what they were doing. They didn't haul a live man down from that cross. But let's just say, let's just say for the sake of argument that he wasn't really dead. They threw him in the tomb and he, you know, he woke back up. Well, then he's faced with moving a two-ton rock. Now, I don't know about you. I was out here this week. Um, I'm 54. You already figured that out earlier today. I was out here this week. Uh, you know, help me and Mac were out there cleaning up the parking lot and stuff. And, uh, I, you know, I have to take two days after that to recover. Now, Jesus has been beaten to a pulp. He's nearly bled out on the cross. And everything that he's been through, and he's going to move a two-ton stone. I, I don't think so. I think this is an implausible, though there are, very implausible, but there are people who actually believe this, that Jesus didn't really die. So that's one of the three explanations that we have. Another one is that the body was stolen. Because Jesus said that he would rise from the dead. His disciples, the the story goes, the disciples made sure that there was no body so that they could claim uh, that he he did what he said he would do. The problems with that are these, at least, that there was a Roman guard there. Four Roman soldiers whose lives were on the line. The seal, uh, the, um, an official seal was placed on that tomb. Anybody messing with that tomb, anybody who got past these guards to mess with that tomb, uh, their lives would have been forfeit. And so, the, you know, these fishermen taking on four Roman soldiers, the world's mightiest fighting force, I think not. What about the martyrs? Do you know that most of the of the twelve, most of the disciples, uh, gave their lives in martyrdom? Famously, Peter being crucified upside down. And if they stole the body, they know it's a fraud. Would you? Allow yourself to be tortured and killed for something you knew to be a falsehood? To be a lie? I don't think so. I don't think this is a plausible explanation. The third explanation is that he rose from the dead. Do you know that in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul writes that there were 500 people who saw Jesus alive after he rose And at the time of that writing, most of them were still alive and could have easily, were it not true, have said, hey, I I didn't see anything. That never happened. History does not record any refutation to Paul's argument that 500 people 
You could have gone to Paul and said, what are their names? And he could have given them to you. This wasn't a random count. And most of those people were still alive to be able to verify the facts. There is no refutation of this um, uh, statement by the Apostle Paul. There's also the, the remarkable, absolutely astounding truth that the the gospel first penetrated the city of Jerusalem where all these things took place. And a church, the first church, was born in the very place where Jesus was crucified and buried. And the religious leaders had every reason to try to put this thing down, to discredit this, because thousands of people are becoming followers of Christ. If they could have, don't you think, that they would have marched everybody out to the place, opened this tomb and said, there is the man. They could not. Because he wasn't there. They could not put down this uh, burgeoning, exploding church of Jesus Christ because they couldn't refute the central claim that Jesus rose from the dead. So what, and by the way, you know, we could spend the next week talking about the mound of evidence to support the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. That's just a sample. Here's what it's really about. So what? So what? Well, here's so what. If Jesus rose from the dead, God can be trusted. When you open this book and you read one of the, you know, thousands of God's promises in here, you can bank on it. You can count on it. God can be trusted. If Jesus rose from the dead, there is forgiveness with God. There is forgiveness. All the stuff that you have been involved in that you know are contrary to what's right, what's godly, what's pure, holy, all that stuff, covered, covered. There's forgiveness with God. So what? If Jesus rose from the dead, you and I can have hope beyond this life. Because the Bible says Jesus was the first fruits. His rising from the dead made it possible for death to not hold us either. Now that doesn't mean that they're not going to put me in a, a, a hole in the ground someday and throw dirt on me. They will, but I won't be there. I'll be with my Savior. And that hope that I have is because Jesus rose from the dead. That's, what's, that's what this is all about. That's why this is the heart of the matter. And everything hinges on that.